The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, I'm Clark Ching, and you're listening to the Agile Uprising Podcast. Greetings and welcome to another edition of the Agile Uprising Podcast. I am your host, Jay Hersko. Join with me, I have a longtime listener, first-time caller, Mr. Don Idle. Did I say that right, Don? You said that correctly, yeah. Perfect, perfect. And Don is joining me this week because we're going to talk about a book that we both read that we really got a lot out of, which is uh, Jonathan Smart's Sooner, Safer, Happier, Anti-Patterns and Patterns for Business Agility. So I'm going to start with the simple question to you, Don. What led you to pick up the book? Um, honestly, it's because... Uh, Josh Kiriewski was really big on it for a while. Um, he's somebody that I, I re- have a lot of respect for in the Agile community. Um, and um, he, he just said, you know, this really aligns with my values is what he said. And he put it out there. You know, he's that modern Agile kind of guy. Mm-hmm. I've been a longtime follower of that kind of as a good way of framing some of the things that I, that I value as important. Um, so when he said this, kind of aligns directly with the modern agile principles, better, sooner, safer, happier, right? It, it's those, like the four different principles. So um, when he said that, that piqued my interest a little bit, like, huh, I wonder, because personally, I prefer reading stuff that's more principle-based rather than this is how you do it based. Right, right. I get boxed in. I'm one of those kind of anti-authoritarian <laughs> Type people like if you tell me exactly how to do something, I'm going to rebel against that. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Tell me what you're after and why, then my imagination just goes wild and I start experimenting with things. Right. Um, so that's what led me to to show some interest in the book, and then you know on the uh, Discord channels for Agile Uprising, a little plug there, um, we discussed it a little bit. Like, hey, maybe we should talk about this book, and so that's when I picked it up and finally started reading it. I am. I had kind of the same. Uh, same exposure. So I worked at Barclays, uh, Barclays Hard US uh, many years ago for quite a bit. And there was always rumblings about what was going on over in the UK. And his name came up, you know, they had their agile ways of working, which he leans on a lot in the book that conceptually, um, sadly, it never made it to us across the pond in the US. And I think we might have been better off if we had, but that's neither here nor there. But I remember seeing this book come up numerous times. And I eventually, you know, it was one of those Amazon purchased it on a whim. Let's give it a go. And actually, I got a lot more out of it. And we were talking about before we started recording, I got a lot more out of it than I expected. I really did get a lot more out of it than I expected. So let's start with, for those that haven't read the book, Don, um, let's start with talking about the structure, right? So Jonathan writes this where he starts with an anti-pattern and a pattern. What did you think about that way of laying out the narrative? Um, at first, I wasn't sure as I was reading it, I thought, hmm, is this going to be a helpful way? But in some ways it is because he's using storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Storytelling is a really powerful tool to get ideas across. So he's saying, this is an anti-pattern and this is what it looks like. And it tells you a story about, you know, too much control versus giving uh, autonomy to teams. 
and he shares what that looks like in a story format. And so it's easy to identify like, yeah, I've been on that team before, right? <laughs> Anti-pattern team. So I think it's a, um, as I started reading through the book, I started to buy into that concept more to say, yeah, I think that works because of the storytelling aspect. It makes it very clear what he's trying to say, right? Right. right. Versus anti-pattern. So this is the, this is the ugly. And maybe you self-identify as experiencing the ugly. Here's what it could be. And then, you know, so that's the, that's the, I guess the positive patterns rather than the anti-patterns. And then he says, and here's how you could get there. Right. Right. He doesn't come off as, as preachy or, pre, or, or prescriptive to say, yeah. this is what you have to do. And here's why yeah. I, he, you're, you're spot on with, he starts off with what he has seen, right. That lived experience where a lot of us, you know, when you're reading that anti-pattern section, <laughs> you talked about, you know, confirmation bias in the sense of, yeah, I kind of did live this. Like I live the whole, you know, weaponized metrics. I live the whole top-down giant whole swag transformation. So it does make it easy to uh, conceptually bounce that against your experience and say, okay, this guy, I kind of get what he's, I got, I got to get, I'm, I'm picking up what he's putting down because it resonates with me in my own personal experience. And it, and at no point does it come across as thou shalt, thou shalt. It's really more of, hey, here was my experience. Here's what I think we should have done better. And here's how you could maybe do it yourself. And I think that that's a change that we've started to see with more of the invitation kind of aspect. Of mm-hmm. And so we've seen this change maybe in the last four or five years where people have taken, take, gone away from that big bang approach. And we started to evolve in our conversations, right. As coaches and things like that, like how do we invite change rather than impose change? Um, and I feel like this whole book has that mindset of here's an invitation to try some new things and mm-hmm. here's what it might look like for you if you were to try them. Right, right. I, I really liked how he introduces complexity very early on. I even think it was in like the introduction to the acknowledgements. He starts talking about Kinevin and he talks about how he explicitly makes a statement that unique product development, which is what most of us are involved in, in some way, shape or form, it, it truly is an unknown unknown. It is unknowable because you don't know if you're truly being unique. So understanding that, uh, he drops a bon mot later in the book where he asks the question, and I had it highlighted and underlined and circled in red pen, what are you optimizing for? Yeah. So what, what are you actually trying to do? And that is, you know, a lot of us practitioners, when we get together around the water cooler, we all kind of complain. The biggest complaint is we don't have, there typically isn't that North Star. There isn't that idea that we're all marching towards. Um, I thought the idea of thinking, of asking yourself, thinking about what are you optimizing for is a really good exercise. Mike Burroughs talks about it all the time in, in, you know, working from right to left. But he also introduced this word, which I, which I I highlighted because I thought it was kind of interesting. The idea of valuativity, which is that what is the soonest realization of the most value with the least output? And when you read that, you're like, ah, I get it. Again, it's it's the the trite MVP. It's the idea of moving fast and breaking things. It's get myself into small cycles so I can figure out what's working. Well, one thing I when I approach teams or, or um, talk to people that are trying to figure out how to do things, I, I always just ask, well, what's better than what we have now? How do we get to better? Right. And uh, mm-hmm. it's funny because I mean that's that's the terminology I would use before this book came out. And this book has it in the title, you know, better, safer, sooner, happier better value, safer, sooner, happier. Um, So I'd always say, well, is it better than what we had yesterday? They're like, yeah, but it's not ready. It's not good enough. It's not. I said, but is it better? They say, yes. I say, deploy it. 
Mm -hmm. It's better. <laughs> and tomorrow we'll do something better again. Right. And a bunch of little betters will create a lot of tangible value for people. Right. It, it's the, <clears throat> there's an overriding human. Almost, we're, we're kind of programmed that way to look for perfection and it's not done and it needs to be done. And agile isn't like baking a cake, right? right. It's not like baking a cake where it needs to do 30 minutes at 450. Otherwise you may kill somebody with raw eggs, right? It's not, well, I could probably argue, I could probably with a couple of beers argue the opposite, but whatever. Um, you do need to make those little steps, like you said, to make it better incrementally. And as long as you can build on that, uh, you're going to set yourself up for success. Yep. Well, and that kind of takes us into the Kubler-Ross curve, which he has a whole kind of section mm -hmm. on uh, well, change and inviting change and big change versus small change. Yeah. yeah the, the idea, the statement of... um. Uh, forcing the pace of change will likely lead to real lasting change, either not happening at all or taking longer with more risk. And there's a, the graphic, Don, that jumped out at me, I have a flag on it, is the, the change curve where he actually makes a statement that um, if you push harder, it's going to take longer and the curve will be deeper, that, that satire bottoming. And yeah. if you, the, the bigger you try, the deeper and longer that curve cycle is. And that was one of those things where I stepped back and went, wow. I never thought that way. Well, and it, it, that goes back to Peter Senge's book, right? Um, with, uh, with regarding to uh, systems thinking, where he's, one of the, the laws of systems thinking is the more you push against a system, the more it's going to push back. <coughs> yeah, it's also true with, when it comes to change, right? And that's why small pushes, small change, um, or as um, John Cutler uh, was riffing on quite a bit a while back as small bets, right? Right. Um, maybe you don't want to bet a thousand dollars on the thing, but how does 50 bucks sound? Does that sound like something you could risk? And people are like, yeah, I'd try it for 50 bucks. Right. So in terms of expense of time and energy and output, um, sometimes people say I could do the smaller thing, but I'm not going to transform the entire way I work right now. I just right. Right. And, and like you said, it's the inflict versus invite versus inspire idea of transformation where um, he talks about how uh, transformation as a mandated program uses old ways of thinking to apply new ways of working, which is it's it's kind of um, antithetical to what we're trying to do. And every company most of us have ever worked in, that's how we approach transformation. It's a big bang. Let's move everything. Let's change everything at once. There's a, We forget what we know about organizational elasticity. We forget what we know about change fatigue. We forget all those things and we just kind of push it. And it's and like you said, like Sanky said, the heart, and not only when you push the system, the system, system pushes back, the system pushes back twice as hard, right. right? So that's the other thing where it's like, I'm really taking one step forward and eight back. Is this really worth it? Well, and that's where clients, right? Customer uh, companies that hire coaches to come in and transform the organization. That's when they get fatigued too, right? Is that they realize that things start to crumble or to fall apart. I once worked for an employer that came in and they had, they had never had any kind of process whatsoever. Um, and in terms of uh, um, project management or how they work through projects, right? Um, and so they hired me and said, can you come in and just help us with this and, and help us fix this? Well, right then it was around the start of my agile journey. So I started reading and like, well, these new ideas, let's, let's try these new ideas and things like that. And within six months, uh, my boss called me into her office. She said, Don, I feel like since you've joined, suddenly we have all these problems. 
And I said, well, no, actually those problems were already here. I'm just pointing them out. We're, we're bringing them to light. <laughs> right, right, elevated. Now we can yeah. actually deal with them. Now we can actually deal with them. And, uh, but that, that was the fatigue part, right? Is that I was introducing some change or some energy behind that. People kind of got excited by that we're going to do things better. And then after a while, they just started realizing how much work it's going to be to get there mm. better and how much change it's going to require to get to better. So right. A little bit of fatigue there. But then eventually we did get over that. We went back up on the curve. And, um, you know, I think we left in a, left it in a good, good spot. You know, you you bring up an interesting what could be another episode in and of itself. It's the idea of um, agile coaching as really just agents of chaos. Right. Because that's really what you do. You kind of it's 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 the intended role of an agile coach is to shake the boggle box, shake it rearrange all the tiles, right? And see where they lay now and then get everybody re looking at those tiles with a fresh set of eyes. And to your point, it's not that I created problems. I just found, I found the, the nomenclature that we can put a name to them and talk about, okay, well, this is what we, where we have a constraint. We kind of knew it was a problem before, but now we have a word for it. It's a constraint. Um, one of the other things I thought was really interesting in the book, which a lot I've never seen, I, most authors don't touch on, is an honest assessment of what kind of effort and timeline it's going to take to successfully enact these changes, right? Jorgen Hesselberg talked about it a bit in Unlocking Agility when he talked about, you know, it takes years and 15% of our employee population typically will not make the shift and that's okay. John talks about, he brings in sigmoid curves, the S curve, you know, anybody who's read Carlotta Perez, te uh, technological innovation of financial capital. And he talks about the timeline for successful change, where if you're looking at the 80-20 rule, it typically takes three to five years with a tailwind, five to seven with a headwind. Right. And that is, and, and, I, and let me know what you think, Tom, but I think that's where we, we as, as change catalysts typically run into problems because nobody is thinking that far ahead to be in it, to win it for that long. You know, when they, when you hear agile change, somebody thinks, oh, we'll just, you know, we'll do, we'll use Jira and we'll stand up teams and maybe some trains that were good. And the rest of us are looking at going, no, 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 no. This is, this is, this is a marathon, not a sprint. Pardon the terrible pun. Right. Well, that's the whole idea of we want to have a three-year agile transformation, right? And that's what we're going to invest in. That's what we're going to plan for. Um, that would be a three-year would get you to the starting point. Right? right, right. A lot of times, because there's a lot of things that are entrenched, especially for these older organizations that have so many systems and everything entrenched, automation, different things that are entrenched in the way the organization does business. You can't just say in three years, we're going to be transformed. It'll look different. But it's just a starting point. Um, I work for a company that went through that big bang. You know, they told, they kicked all the managers out of the room and told them to stay. <laughs> like they did all kinds of interesting things. Uh, and people look back that on that time period as kind of chaotic, but also felt like it was positive in the long run. Um, but I also think that it did some, some damage in a way, um, in the way they did it. It was so hard, uh, hard, mm. right? And so what ended up happening now is the organization is like, well, we're, we're agile-like. And so I end up explaining to people like, no, actually you are agile. The fact that you're not following it by the book anymore means that you're probably more agile. Right, right. As long as you have the right principles in place, that's the important thing. And I'd say that the mindset has changed throughout the whole organization through that process, but it's taken years. And also too, with DevOps kind of transformations and things like that, 
um, Josh, in one of his talks, Josh Kiriewski, he said, you know, Amazon, right, AWS, it became this huge thing internally, and then they, they turned it into a, a product. He said, but people don't understand, it took them like 15 years to create that. And yes. An investment, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of heartbreak, a lot of argument. Yeah. Right. If you do DevOps in a two-year transformation, it took Amazon 15 years to get there. Right. There's that famous blog post, which I still read every once in a while because it's a really fascinating story about how they went to a API-based service, service service-oriented architecture where that, you know, the edict came down from Bezos that everything is going to interact with the service. Um, This needs to be done. And if you don't want to do this, I will fire you. And it was like, Okay, but they got where they need to be. And as a side, as as a side effect of that, right? You just talked about as a, as a bonus impact, they found an entire product that actually makes them profitable, right? Yeah. AWS was not people don't realize, or most people don't realize, AWS was not a purposeful invention. It was a self serving invention that they turned and said, "Hey, we could put this on the market, and somebody would probably go for it." And now, I mean, when I look at some of like the step functions they do with the WYSIWYG editors, it's kind of wild where it's gotten. But yeah, it was really just trying to as a side effect of making their lives better, they created a new product, which is really kind of cool. Yeah, and that shows the adaptability and all that kind of thing, right? And and make one step at a time. And again, going back to the book, that's kind of how it talks about, you know, the approach to agile, small steps, one mm-hmm. step at a time, kind of sense and respond, right? Instead of always having a plan for an agile transformation, it's more of a, a sense and respond. And sometimes what I tend to do, and you talked about, shaking up the box, but uh, I like that, um, the idea of poking, poking around and you might poke a spot and feel a little give there, right? And say, oh, there's some movement here. I can do this. And then you poke another spot and everybody yells and you go, okay, I won't touch that one. Yeah, that hurts. Don't touch that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you start to make progress by little pokes and little prods mm-hmm. and little questions and, and seeing if you can help people along. Um, the other thing too, that I think is good, uh, maybe I'm a little off topic here, but the idea of of sharing the mindset and then letting it go. Yes. And a moment kind of happens again, and then you share the mindset and then you let it go. And then eventually you hear somebody in the room say, you know what? I think this mindset might be a good approach here. And you say, that's a great idea. <laughs> right. Fantastic. I am convinced that we're, we're literally, our job is basically Johnny Appleseed crossed with the Joker right? We're setting seeds and introducing a little chaos and just seeing what happens. And there are times, like you said, well, you'll poke something and it hurts and you poke something and it hurts less. And then you poke it again and you find there's give because something has taken there. And you don't know, you don't necessarily need to know what it is, but understanding that there's a little bit of give there goes a long way. Yeah. It's about what people are ready for. And, and that's why, like you say, planting those seeds and being patient and waiting for them to grow. Um, eventually something does change. Something does happen, I think. In the mm-hmm. uh, you, you talked about um, uh, better. Early on, we talked about, you know, wh- what are you doing? How can we do things a little bit better? I, I, I always go back to Craig Larman in his, in his last class. He talks about how don't, you don't tell people that what they're doing is wrong because waterfall. It's not wrong. What, the, what, what people did to get themselves in the positions they're in and stature in the company, it's not wrong. It's incongruent with what we're trying to do now. And what we're trying to do now is get that valuativity out the door. Mm-hmm. And I think that even that small change in wording where don't tell people that waterfall isn't wrong. It just doesn't match what the goals that we're trying to achieve now, which is better values, sooner, safer, happier. I was, and speaking of Craig Larman and, and this book, 
I like how Jonathan brings up the idea of descaling. And he actually explains it. It's take some of the complexity out of your system uh, before you try and change it. And he talks about a lot about dependencies and impediments, which I think is great because it's one of those things where we just, we typically use the term manage dependencies, which that's probably the wrong mindset to think about. We should be thinking about breaking them, right? Which is the truly the idea of cross-functional teams. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to give my hat. I'm going to tip my hat to safe, but also take my hat tip back in the sense of it talks a lot about dependencies, but it talks a lot about dependency management. And I think maybe they might be better served if they emphasize that you don't want dependencies. You don't want to have to manage them. I know that might be a little bit of, of greenfield thinking, but if it's aspirational and you get halfway there, it's better than you were before. Yeah. I like to say, if you don't like the answer, remove the question, right? So we mm -hmm. have a blocker because of X and we can't do it because of Y. Well, how do we remove that even as a question or a need? Right? Right. Um, and that's the removing the, the impediment altogether so that you're not managing it. You're just removing it and can work past it. Right. Right. Get it out of the way. Um, mm -hmm. The impediments are not in the path. Impediments are the path. That, right. That's the, that's the you know, yeah. <laughs> where it hurts is where you should be going. Because if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. Yeah, and tying back what we were talking about before with poking and prodding and trying to figure out, the book does talk about the velocity of learning and unlearning. That the transformation yes. can only happen as fast as people can unlearn and as fast as people can learn new concepts and ideas. And I think that's exactly what you and I were touching on with planting seeds, uh, sharing new ideas, inspiring people to think differently, and then seeing how fast they learn and unlearn. And as people start to come on board, then you start to see the momentum shift. Mm -hmm. Right. 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 It's, it's, uh, and, and I think the team topologies guys talk about that, right. With cognitive load and, and how much are you really putting on people? And we do need to be aware of, you know, this changes a lot of us on our agile journeys. It didn't happen overnight. It took a bit, it took a bit of, 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 um, almost doubting Thomas, right. It took a bit of belief. It took a bit of disbelief. It took a couple of cycles to where we finally got to the point where we got it right. Um, uh, soul of Tarsus, you know, has the epiphany, he becomes St. Paul and we're off to the races and now we have Christianity, right? And, and, and man, that was kind of a reach of an analogy, but that's, <laughs> kind, that's kind of where it happens for all of us. And I think sometimes maybe we as practitioners do need to turn that mirror around and look at it and remember that this didn't happen to me in a day either. It, it, it took a bit. You have to remember that some of it feels like illogical, right? Slow mm -hmm. down, yeah, work on less things. Like yep. those things is like, what do you mean? What do you mean telling me to work on less things? I got all this work to do. Right, right. We, we have these strategic priorities, Don. We can't, we can't, we have to start all five of them now because we committed to them for this year. Right. So there's a lot of internal, I think, conflict and in, in trying to absorb and, and you almost need to, that's where that experimental mindset comes in. We're like, let's just try it and let's see if it works or not. This is the theory. Mm -hmm. Let's try limiting work in progress to see if it actually helps us. And a lot of times, at least in the experiments that I did, because I wasn't sure either, right? In my, uh, but I said, it's an interesting idea. It makes sense when you, when you break it down in the theory, the way they explain it, it makes sense to at least try it. And we tried it and we found the effects to be greater, right? Right. So it, now it, I'm in. Yeah. yeah. And so now you adopt it. And then the next thing is like, well, this personal conflict with the next thing, but what are the experiments we can try to validate whether that's a, an idea that actually works in our context or not. Right? Yeah. 
Right. So speaking of experiments, the, the one chapter in this book that really jumped out at me, and I can't believe I'm actually going to say this because it's never been an interest point so far in my career, um, the chapter on safety and how Jonathan discusses the idea of safety. So typically you have an, <clears throat> an InfoSec department, a data privacy department, a, um, a fraud department. You know, I was at Barclays. We had fraud. We had um, we had credit risk. We had AML. We had all these different pieces. And typically they're all disparate and you engage them all differently. And you kind of take the QC versus QA approach, you know, for quality assurances, you build quality in quality controls, you inspect, inspect quality into the end, inspect to make sure it's there. And he talks a lot about creating t- safety teams, which I thought was a novel name <clears throat> in and of itself, of making them cross-functional. So somebody from InfoSec, data privacy, fraud, AML, whatever, and then having them dedicated and aligned to a value stream. Right, have them dedicated to that work, making uh, making them more proactive, right? Getting them more involved early on, so they can be proactive. Creating the idea of risk stories, right? Stories uh, of what typical risks are, and then you talk about the intent and what you're trying to prevent, and let the team solve for them. So I love this idea in theory. However, my my only question would be, and I would love to talk to Jonathan about how we would do this in practice. Is typically those people in an org? There's not a lot of them. They're right. kind of purple squirrels for you recruiters out there, right? They don't grow on trees. And when they do show up, they're kind of unique and expensive. How, how would we do this in a, in, a, in a giant bank, in a giant insurance company, in a giant telco, right? I, I think I would love more information about how to build this in because I think that is a brilliant solution to, Don, we've all been there, the dreaded, oh no, we're going to go live. Did we talk to InfoSec? Can we get them on the phone? Because you know it's and and the poor InfoSec guy has 500 programs on his agenda. You know, he only comes when called and when he shows up, he's kind of like the Grim Reaper because he never has good news because he's involved too late. So I think conceptually, this is just a wild idea. Yeah, one thing when I, when it comes to that kind of thing, I like to think of uh, the idea of automation, right? So how do you automate compliance? Hmm or whatever your organization has that, that needs, you know, guardrails, right, for safety. How do you automate that? Uh, you know, there's that time when an employee who was kind of new um, for Amazon took down half the internet um, with one code change. And people were just like, that person needs to be fired and blah, 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 and really harping down on that one individual who was new and didn't know better, right? When the truth is that there should have been a safe environment for them to make a mistake like that and have it get caught before it goes out the door. Right. Right. So they didn't have a safe environment to work in. That was the real issue. Not that this person was a bad employee. Right. And the fact that for no cost, right, for no cost, meaning you didn't pay someone to find this, he found a major problem a major weak point, you know, we talk about attack surface yeah. when it comes to cybersecurity. He found a major weak point in this first day. And, and <laughs> you know, like what are the odds? What are the odds? Probably slim to none that he found this, this, this weak point and he, he compromised it. So that's the learning they got out of that. Right. It's kind of wild. Right. But yeah. So I like to, I like to, you know, tell people what's, how do you make the right thing to do the easiest thing to do? Right. That's a good way to put it. Yep. And so again, looking for better, right? So you're not going to find perfect to guard all the things, but how do you make, make doing the right thing the easy thing? 
that's I like that. Make the right thing to do the easiest thing to do because then people will naturally default. That's perfect. That's perfect. So uh, last topic I want to touch on, Don, because I think this was an important one in the book, the idea of leadership, right? So uh, Jonathan talks about um, leadership behavior as a culture amplifier and you want to build a leadership pipeline within your organization. What were your thoughts on this section? Well, being that I've been uh, now in management for the last uh, few years and thinking besides being like a, a transformation type, organizational transformation type person to an actual business leader in the organization, you know, we talk a lot about how to, how, how to be a good manager, how to be a good leader. And uh, that's exactly it, is to um, create leaders within the organization, give them the space, give them the time to do that and also to share the models and the mindsets, right? Um, which has really benefited me as a manager to have all this agile experience and agile mm-hmm. thought and, and because it's, it's a lot about empowering people. And that's, I think what makes a good manager is providing that modeling, what you want them to, what you want to see from them. Um, and that's good, especially if you have an agile mindset, you're gonna create organically, you're going to create an agile mindset among the people you work with, right? Um, And then, I guess, kind of growing and scaling that out. So I always tell people, like, how do we, um, how do we use our leadership here? Uh, And I mean that out to other organizations and things like that. Sometimes people are always waiting for the leader, like, well, I'm waiting for the leader to tell me what to do. Well, how about you exercise your leadership in the organization? What do you think the organization should do? And some people never thought to be asked that question before, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But you can empower people to speak up and to say, I'm going to exercise my leadership here, and I'm going to tell you what I intend to do, to use Marquet's kind of language, right? I intend to do this, and then see if anybody screams. That's what I tell people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's There's a a lot to come at it. I mean, I think, I always think of the... um, I, I came across a quote somewhere where it's good leaders create the importance of leadership where good leaders create followers, great leaders create disciples, people that truly learn and take that forward. And the example, I mean, the trite sports example I always get is Bill Walsh. He was a great coach, but if you look at his staff, his staff went on to be it's uh, Mike Holmgren and Belichick and all these really successful people who worked for him, Bill Parcells, I think even. So there's a lot of people when you get behind a good leader, not only do they, uh, do they um, exemplify and demonstrate the, the, cap- the qualities that they want from their people, you can't help rub off on people. You can't help it. I mean, if you truly find that connection and you create that space to have that connection, there's no limit to what you can influence because you're literally modeling the culture that you want to see. Yep. Yeah. And I'm, actually, I'm reading another book right now called Multipliers by uh, Liz Wiseman. And that talks a lot about leadership and giving up the space and that there are some leaders that are accidental diminishers, right? They're the ones that come in and save everybody, protect everybody, and uh, want to be the smartest one in the room and, and things like that. And they have good intentions, but they suck all the air. Right. Activity and of productivity and of contribution from all the other team members. Whereas the better leaders kind of leading from the back of the room, right? The better leaders will step back ask a question and then just wait wait and watch what happens or ask questions that they don't know the answer to, right? Sometimes as a leader, we'll ask a a leading question. Mm -hmm. We we have a right answer already in our head, but the idea of asking questions that we don't know to try to get the best thinking out of everybody, 
right? That's what we want in an agile organization is we want everybody at their best creatively yeah. and, and product productivity, you know, in terms of being productive, um, we want everybody at their best. And the best way to do that is to create that safe environment for people to express themselves and to give them the space to be able to grow into that. Right. The, the most successful thing uh, you can do as a leader is find a way to turn people who work with you and for you into leaders themselves. That is the literally the gift that keeps on giving. Um, we're, we're quickly approaching time and there are so many more topics. So for those of you that haven't read the book, there are, um, he touches on DevOps, he touches on tech practices. Martin Fowler comes up quite a few bits, quite a few times, the strangler pattern. We talk, he talks about making bets, right? Uh, like you talked about with John Cutler, uh, yeah. Alan Kelly's OKRs show up at one point. He talks about organizational empathy. And uh, I think we're going to close with, uh, this is a shout out to a uh, friend of the podcast, Claudia, who's been on a few times. This is her favorite quote in the book. And I think uh, a lot of us can, can, we can close with this because it's brilliant and it makes you think. Uh, the quote is, after reorganizing new job titles, ceremonies, the so-called Spotify model, and declaring the horse has transformed into a unicorn, all you will accomplish is you will have glued fake horns to the horse's head. It will not poop rainbows and i think that's probably the best best quote and it's a great way to think about what we do so uh, i'm going to take us out of here on behalf of myself i want to thank you don for taking the time today to sit in with us it was great okay. to finally meet you and we hope this is the first of many um productive encounters on behalf of don and myself we want to thank all of you listeners for tuning in once again find us on uh anywhere anywhere your podcast is hosted if you do like what you hear please give us a review or a rating we, these do help it does help other people find us shout out to machine man records and krebs for providing our outro music um uh with no rights this is great uh, eventually we can monetize youtube sometime and i think projections is like 2082 but we'll get there um once again we do but we are committed to being free but we do have a patreon we also have a new quarterly program where uh, at a certain tier you get some surprise gifts in the mail so who knows maybe i'll send you stickers i'll send you patches magnets um maybe i'll send you my uh uh, notes and my let Craig Lorman less class worth their weight in gold. So once again, I want to thank Don for sitting in again. And until next time, this is the Agile Uprising podcast signing out. Yeah.